This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. As we've been going through this talking about revival, a couple of weeks ago we looked at Psalm 85, which talked about you know, revive us again and all that kind of stuff. And, and then we've been asking a question, what does revival look like? And today I'm going to talk about, instead of global revival, personal revival. Last week I read some accounts to you from the First and Second Great Awakening of what that revival actually was like. Today I would like to read some accounts to you of what small um, regional and sometimes just local revivals look like in the last hundred years. When we're talking about a revival, not a personal revival, when it spills out into the community, this is pretty much what it looks like. Let me read this to you. Many have heard of the great Welsh revivals of 1904 and 1905. It touched all classes and ages. Newspapers, newspapers kept tally as the churches swelled with new converts, over 100,000 in one six-month period. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Have we ever had anything like that happen in America? The Cardiff police reported a 60% decrease in drunkenness and 40% fewer people in jail at New Year's Eve in 1905. The glam- in Glamorin, the convicts for drunkenness released from or decreased from 11,282 in 1904 to 5,615 in 1907. Stocks of Welsh Bibles were sold out. Profanity was so diminished in the coal mines that as the people were driving their coal carts in the tunnels, they did not even understand the commands anymore and stood still confused because there was no profanity mixed with them. Even children held their own meetings in homes and barns. What is not well known is the fact that the power revival spread to America as well as many other countries. Welsh immigrants who lived in Pennsylvania were receiving news of their homeland. Suddenly, in December 1904, an awakening began in Wilkes Bar, and the Reverend J.D. Roberts was one month instru- in one month instructed 123 people in his small church for salvation. By early spring, the Methodists in Philadelphia were claiming 10,000 converts, the greatest in-gathering since 1880. In Schenectady, in New York, a local ministerial association heard reports of the Great Revival in Wales and united all evangelical denominations in meetings for prayers and evangelistic rallies. Oh, that happens a lot today, doesn't it? By January 22, 1905, all the evangelical congregations in the city were packed with awakened and seeking people. In Troy, New York, the awakening began during the January week of prayer held in the Second Presbyterian Church, and spread to 29 other churches in the city. Throughout New England, the revival spread in the spring of 1905. Edward Orr wrote that, quote, the movement was characterized by an intense sensation of the presence of God in the congregations, as in the Welch revival. The churches were obviously in the midst of a revival of greater power and extent than New England had known since 1858. The southern states were not overlooked by the Lord. Late in 1905, the Atlanta newspaper reported that nearly a thousand businessmen had united in intercession for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In November 2nd, with unprecedented unanimity, stores, factories, and offices closed in the middle of the day for prayer. Georgia's Supreme Court adjourned for prayer. In Louisville, Kentucky, the press reported, quote, the most remarkable revival ever known in the city is now entering Louisville. Fifty-eight of the leading business firms in the city are closed at the noon hour for prayer meeting. In March 1905, Henry Clay Morrison said, quote, The whole city is breathing a spiritual atmosphere. Everywhere in shopping stores, in the mill and on the street, salvation is the one topic of conversion. In Redwood Falls, Minnesota, 
the awakening brought out 600 men, women, and children to an interdenominational meeting during temperatures of 22 degrees below zero. A wave of revival touched many of the churches in the Minneapolis area, and W.B. Riley told of a movement in Spring Valley where a sixth of the population of that city professed conversion. Now that happened in America. We don't really hear that much about it. It was all centered from a Welsh revival that the Holy Spirit brought over by revived individuals, Welsh immigrants, and it caught on like fire in various areas of the United States. Do you believe that can happen today? Well, in order for it to happen at the Welsh revival, certain Welsh immigrants who were revived personally themselves brought that revived spirit of God over to the United States and it caught fire. Just like anything that's exciting has a tendency of catching fire. And what we have to do is determine if we're willing as individuals and corporately as a congregation to experience personal revival. And we've talked about this for several weeks. I just want to go over it real quickly. What does revival mean? It means that you take this word and what it says is what you do. It's what you think. It's how you feel. It's how you respond. It's not up to personal interpretation. It's not up to your opinions. It's not up to what you think it's going to work. If it talks about that you have fellowship with brothers, you have fellowship with brothers. If it talks about that you get together and resolve differences, you get together and resolve differences. You do the hard stuff because God is commanding you to do it. It means that you will basically follow him wherever he leads, and sometimes that's in difficult places. That you'll surrender to him whatever he asks, and you will be dependent upon him to work things out. Not in your own strength, but in his strength. So I was asking the Lord this week, I mean, Lord, I, I want to I understand what this revival is all about. I mean... I see some stories in the Old Testament about what a revival is like. Acts chapter 2 is an incredible revival, 3,000 people being saved, and after their conversion, the things that happened after that. But give me, give me an idea. Show me areas in Scripture where you're reviving people. In the King James, the word is usually used as quicken. So I just did a word study of revival, and I kind of got mesmerized just at Psalm 119. There's like seven or eight passages in this one psalm that talked about being revived. And each of those give us an, an inference or a picture of the purpose of this kind of revival. And I'm only going to look at about four or five of these to give you a, a biblical understanding of a personal revival. Turn to Psalm 19, 25. Simple passage. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your words. My soul clings to the dust. Get that picture in your head. Revive me according to your word. Well, questions. I always have to ask questions. Now, what does it mean when your soul clings to the dust. I mean, can you get a mental picture of that, of somebody clinging to the dust? I mean, I mean, what happened to this person that the, their soul, their, their innermost being, their mind, their will, their emotions, their volition, everything about them is clinging, whatever that word means, we're going to look at it in just a second, to the dust, to the loose dirt, to the ground. I mean, what happened? Is this person in depression? Is it anxiety? Is there a brokenness about them? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, my sin is so great. Or the, the, the problems I'm facing are, are so momentous. I don't know what to do. And you fall down on the ground and like the old Jewish people didn't throw dust up in the air. Is that what it is? Or is this a picture of fervent, profound worship that you're just laying down in front of the Lord, not even looking at him with your nose in the dust, paying homage to who he is? passage doesn't say. We're reviving, though. It makes you think it may be something a little more than that. So I ask my questions, and then I seek for answers. Well, what do the words mean? Make it personal. Make it personal, because it was personal when this was written. My soul. Put your name there. Steve. Everything about Steve. 
who he, who he is, his mind, his will, his volition, his personality, his dreams, his aspirations, his future, his successes, his failures, everything that he holds dear to him, everything that he's promised, everything about him, my soul, my breath, my inner beings, my thought is what the word means. My soul clings to cleave, to be joined, to stick together like, like inseparable. I know I've shared this with you before in Genesis 3, of course, it talks about how you know, husband and wife will cleave together and be one flesh. And, you know, we see that word cleave and don't really know what it means. And the next time we see that passage uh, defined in Scripture, it's talking about how leprosy cleaves to someone, clings to someone. It's something that can't be done away with. It's in your DNA. It's in your, your, your skin. It's, it's in your very cells. And this is what it's talking about here, this, this kind of clinging. My soul clings to the dust, whether it's through depression, whether it's through anxiety, whether it's through fear, whether it's through lost dreams and aspirations, I mean, whatever it is, whatever the Lord has allowed you to experience, whatever we've done by our own volition, whatever Satan has thrown our way. Well, what do we do? How do we cry out? How do we resolve from that, no matter how bad the situation is? My soul clings to the dust, semicolon. Or colon. Revive. Important word. It means in the Hebrew to quicken. When something that was dead all of a sudden revives, the light, the eyes begin to, to dart back and forth up under the eyelids and slowly the eye, uh, eyes open. A big breath of air is taken and the fingers begin to move and we're watching this take place. And oh my gosh, it's almost like if we were in a tomb with Lazarus when his spirit came back. He's beginning to move. He's beginning to quicken. He's now alive. It means to live or have life. It means to flourish. And literally the definition of revive means to make one's life even more alive. Jesus talked about that, like the abundant life, the abundant life in Christ. The abundant life in Christ is a revived life. It's a life that's even better than the life you're living outside of Christ. I have my brother standing over here who's a lost person, and I have a saved person right next to my brother. We're both alive. We're both living our life. He's doing his thing, and I'm doing my thing. We drink the same air. We're eating the same food. We're living in the same country. And the reality, actually, we're not eating the same food, but we're having the, uh, we're in the same country. But the fact is, is because I'm revived and the spirit is in me that my life is even more alive than his life. His life is alive physically. My life is alive spiritually. But it's also alive morally. It's also alive relationally. It's also alive in so many different facets because you're revived by the Spirit of God. My soul clings to the dust, Lord. Revive me. Make my life even more alive. Not revive them. But revive me. Steve's soul clings to the dust. Lord, would you revive Steve? Not on the basis of his good works. Not on the basis of, of how he deserves it. Not on the basis of homage that he's paid or how faithful he's been or not faithful. But according to your word. According to the words that come out of your mouth. According to the promises. According to the utterances. Or literally it means according to your revealed way of giving life to your saints. The scripture tells you, tells me how to live an abundant life in Christ. It tells us whether to trust myself, my own heart, which is despicably wicked, who can know it, or it tells me to trust the spirit that lives within me. The spirit tells me to pray. I don't know how to pray. Well, then these are the disciples and they asked Jesus how to pray and he taught them how to pray. And even when I can't pray, the spirit prays for me with groans and utterances. Do you remember? It's all laid out for us. How do I do this? What does this revival look like? One of the things that I have learned recently, and I many passages about this, but a good passage is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, is the fact that we follow a two-phased, two-sided God from our vantage point. God says, now see that I, even I, am He. I am Jehovah. I am Elohim. I am the Lord Almighty, and there is no God beside me. I am the only one. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. 
There no one, nor is there anyone who can deliver out of my hand. I kill and I make alive. I wound. I heal. I'm sovereign. I choose. So when I look at this, I see that God is a sovereign, two-sided God. I mean, He's going to do what He wants to do. And when revival takes place, it's a it's a it's a revival of asking God for life and for healing, not for what sometimes we bring upon ourselves. And this can only come from Him. So the questions I'm asking you are the questions that I get asked when I prepare the messages. And here's the questions that were asked of me. Steve, you ever been in such a dry spiritual place that your soul seemed like it was glued to the dust? Yeah, I have. The problem is, when I'm like that, sometimes I know getting right means I have to change some things in my life and humble myself, and sometimes I just feel satisfied with my nose in the dust, just absolutely beat down by life and and to the point that sometimes my prayers don't even get as far as the ceiling, and so I just quit praying. I read God's Word, and sometimes my soul is so dry that it doesn't make any sense, so I don't read God's Word anymore. I feel so down and not revived spiritually that I fall back into my old patterns of trying to make me feel better by doing things that I used to do before I got saved. I go out and I buy things I don't need. I eat things that I shouldn't eat. I watch things I shouldn't watch. I I try to somehow stimulate some sort of emotional feel-good feeling because inside my soul is crushed. You ever been there? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it happens. They, They call this the dark night of the soul. I've messed up. I've blown it. I don't know what to do. And so therefore I'm running from everybody and I'm running from everything and I'm running from you especially, God, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. David recognized that my soul clings to the dust and all he does is he looks up like Nebuchadnezzar when he came to himself out in the field for seven years, you know, looking like an animal and he just recognized who God was. Revive me according to what you promised. Revive me according to your word. Revive me not according to my sin or my failures or my lack of vows to you, but revive me because you are the reviving God. Well, Steve, when you were in that position, did you ever ask the Lord to give you life, to revive you, so you can once prosper in your relationship with him? You know, probably not. I asked him to forgive me, and I limped back into a relationship with him. But just to know, no, it stops now. God, you're sovereign. You can do anything. Would you revive me? And when I have asked him that, what's his response? If you've been there and that's happened to you, what happened after you prayed? Did he slap you down? Did he say, I'm not even listening to prayers. You're really disappointed in me. Just get out of my face. Like an abusive father? No. God never, ever, ever does that. We go an inch, he goes a mile. We're in the the middle of this pigsty, wanting to eat what the pigs are eating because we're starving to death by actions of our own, and we decide I'm going to go back to the Father and beg him not to take me back as his son, but to beg him just to take me back as, as one of his slaves. And as soon as the Father sees my broken, dirty, scarred body coming over the hill, do you remember the story? He runs. He runs. The son doesn't run to the father. The father runs to the son, grabs his cloak upon him, put a ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf. My son has come home. That's revival. That's revival. That's ever happened to you. What lessons did you learn? Key lesson. I've shared this with you before. The amount of time I stay out of fellowship with the Lord based on my sin is up to me. It's up to me. I mean, I can turn it around just like that by just asking my loving Father to forgive me. What happens is sometimes in my own life, I, I know that's true because I feel so guilty about my sin, I decide to do penance, so I'm not going to ask you for that for four or five days until I think I've suffered enough, and then I'll come. I mean, that's, isn't that crazy? That means my standard of righteousness is higher than his. How does that work? My soul clings to the dust if you've been like that. It's just asking him for revival. Look a couple verses later in verse 37. Here's another one. 
one of the reasons that keeps us from revival. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Now, I'm not cherry-picking those. This is how the word quicken, the Greek word, that's, or the Hebrew word for revival, is found in Scripture in chronological order, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. I mean, it's the eyes that first bring sin. It was the eyes that, that trapped Eve. Oh, the, she saw the fruit, and it looked good, and it looked good to taste. And you know, it's a wild, it'd be a good thing to get wisdom, and, and therefore she ate. And look at worthless things. My eyes, what's focused on those things. And, and the, the prayer here is not, Lord, help me turn my eyes away. It doesn't say that at all. The implication is, Lord, you turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things, the things of this world, trying to get find happiness in temporal pleasures, money and possessions and fame and fortune and all that kind of stuff that constantly bombards us, that teaches us that's what success is all about. Lord, turn my eyes away from those worthless things and revive me in your way, not according to your word here, but in your way. Lord, turn away my eyes. It means to cover or literally to pass through or pass over unhindered and unencumbered. It's almost like there's, there's worthless things all around. I'm keeping my head up and erect and I'm looking at something off in the, in the horizon and I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to pass through. I'm going to pass over and I'm not going to let these temptations drag me down to let me know that my satisfaction can be found in stuff rather than found in him. Turn away my eyes from looking, inspecting, considering, beholding hmm, at worthless, vain, empty, evil, deceitful things. How does that happen? How can we live through life with one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in this kingdom? Because the foot in God's kingdom doesn't really give us the kind of rewards that everybody pats us on the back for in this kingdom. In this kingdom, all the rewards are temporal. How many people serve you makes you special in this world. In God's kingdom, it's how many people you serve. Well, I don't mind serving them as long as I get recognition for that so that I can be the best server of all so the people in this world will admire me. It doesn't work that way. How do we live that way? How can that change? Lord, to revive me, quicken me, make my life more alive in this world than in this world. I shared this with you before. Um, before I got saved, and I was in church all the time and teaching Sunday school class and all that kind of stuff, I had a serious drinking problem. Um, drank all the time, all the time. Um, and I didn't drink because I liked getting drunk. I drank because I hated being sober. I hated the world that I was in right now. I hated who I was, you know, and I could, I could drink and I didn't think about it for a while. And, and I knew I had to give up the drinking in order to become a Christian because Christ would not approve of my alcoholism. And this the godly lady that discipled me told me, says, you don't have to give up drinking to come to Jesus. Really? I, that's a loophole. I like that one. And I like that one. Yeah. If, if, if you just come to Jesus just like you are, if he decides to take away your drinking, he will do that. Okay. And I realized that I didn't have to make myself holy to come to him. I could come to him just like I was after 200 times of trying, and he met me and redeemed me and saved me. And over a process of several months, he absolutely took away the desire for anything but him. It just, it just, it was miraculous how it happened. It was, I, I just, I don't need this anymore because I kind of like being sober. I kind of like my relationship with Christ because I'm beginning to live a life that is more alive than I thought it was alive when I anesthetized myself with beer. You know what I mean? Turn away my eyes from looking at things that really don't matter and revive me according to the way that you live, according to your path your journey, your mode of life, to walk like Christ walked, to, to go in the path that, that the Lord is, is taking me. That's just the whole idea of Psalm chapter 1, walking in the right paths. It's almost like praying this prayer. Lord, give me so much of you 
This is revival. So much life in you that I will never be tempted by looking at something of no true eternal value. Keep my eyes and my life totally focused on you. That's what we call revival. That's what this passage is talking about. You know, and you could be so beaten down that your soul is sucking dust off the ground. And revival can change the whole thing if we put our focus on him. It's a rejection of the counterfeit for the embracing of what is true. Jesus called it the pearl of great price or the treasure that was hidden in the field. Do you remember the kingdom parables? I'm, we're not, I don't want you to turn to Matthew 13, but he lists these seven kingdom parables. And, and the amazing thing is towards the end of those, it talked about how precious the kingdom is, so much so that we want it more than anything. You know, the first kingdom parable was the sower and the seeds, or the sower and the soil, and only the soil that was prepared produced a crop, and then the wheat and the tares. That here's a man that's got a field of wheat, and some enemy comes in and, and sows things that are counterfeit, but look pretty much like wheat, but produce no fruit. And there's the mustard seed. Just very small, and it grows into a mighty tree that the birds of the air nest in there. And then there's the idea of leaven. If you let sin into your life, then it just takes a little of that to leaven the entire loaf. And then, of course, there's this treasure hidden in a field and this pearl of great price. And then, of course, the final kingdom parable has to do with the big dragnet. What I want to show you is these pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in a field. This is kind of how revival works. Matthew 13, 44. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden, or like a treasure hidden in a field. A guy's walking along the road and he finds his treasure hidden in a, hidden in a field. It's not his field. It doesn't belong to him, but he finds this immense treasure there. And when he finds it for joy, yes, yes. Yes, I go and sell everything that I have and buy that field. Everything that I have, because everything that I possess, everything I've worked for, everything that defines me for who I am. Let's say this guy was a fisherman or a carpenter or had, you know, had several houses or, or whatever. It's all gone. It's all liquidated because I've got to go buy that field because of something I found in there of infinite worth, more so than any earthly possession. That's revival. That's what happens. All he had, all he would ever own was nothing compared to what he found. And if that wasn't good enough, the Lord gives us the next two verses about a man whose job is to find pearls. And he goes and he finds this one pearl, this beautiful pearl, the end result of my entire life of seeking pearls. And when I found one of immense price, I sold everything, all the other pearls I had found that didn't quite measure up. And bought it. Ah, we used to have a whole bunch of this. They're nothing. They're nothing compared to this one. Just look at that one. Look. Look. It's worth everything that I have. All that I have. Because I'm not going to be waylaid by counterfeits anymore. And again, all he had, all he ever had, was nothing compared to that one pearl. Jesus or Paul talked about the same thing when he talked about his relationship with Christ, living in this revival kind of setting that transcends everything. Here's what he said in Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, what things were profitable to me, what things were beneficial to me, what things that I rested my my life in. My Again, my pedigree, the money I've saved, the job that I had, the respect in the community. I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee. I was trained under Gamaliel. I'm more dedicated than anybody else. I just is who I am. I've counted or considered or reckoned all of that nothing. All of that loss. Why? For Christ. Because he is my pearl of great price. He is my treasure found in a field. And yes, indeed, he even goes further than that. I count everything a loss. And the word loss there means a detriment. And it's true. Everything is a detriment for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, as... We'll just leave it at that. Why? That I may gain Christ. 
that I may acquire Christ. Everything that I have gained was a profit to me is nothing compared to actually gaining Christ. All my spiritual life and all my Bible study reading and all the good things that I do, and I'm a good parent and a good employee and the money I've saved and the, the reputation I've acquired, all of that means nothing if I can experience Christ and a revival of like Christ. So what does it mean to gain Christ? Paul, you kind of leave us hanging there in verse number 7. And he continues in verse number 8. Here's a picture of revival. And be found in him. Found by who? The implication is by God. Be found by God residing in my son. And how do you do that? Well, not having my own righteousness is from the law. But that implied righteousness is which through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Not through me, but through faith. And, and, and when I have that righteousness, and when I understand who he is, that I will know, gnosko, experientially, I will know and I will adore him, him and him alone, and the power of his resurrection, the dudamas, explosive power, and the fellowship, the koinonia, the communion, the partnership of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, my total focus is eternal. And not not on this world. I was reading a sermon by Spurgeon, and um, he really summed it up so well. I should have quoted it for you. Spurgeon says, when it comes to you and I being happy, happy, doing things that make us happy, that we have billions and billions and billions of millenniums to be happy in heaven. But right now, and what Spurgeon was saying is right now, most of us have 10 to 15 years, maybe 20 or 30, maybe 40, maybe a few more, to serve him, to, to love him, to adore him. So for me spending my entire life trying to make me happy when I have a future of bliss is really a waste of my life when my job now is to make him happy. And when I make him happy, the residual blessing is joy, which is so much greater than happiness. So what is worth selling all that you have to get? Questions that were asked me. What is worth everything that you are? Well, you are Jesus. Okay, that's that's Sunday school answer. But am I really? Have you really sold everything for me? Are you really surrendering everything to me? I mean, let's let's look at it a little more pointed. What do you value the most? So I thought about that in my own life. What do I value the most? It's not my possessions. Um, it's my independence. I value the most my independence, the ability to determine my own future. Gosh, well, no wonder you struggle when our whole life is supposed to be tied up in him. Revival can show us the answers to these questions, and revival can help us live out the kind of life that he's called us to live. Powerful life, a, a life of of rest and abiding rather than struggling and striving. Make sense? A couple questions. Have you asked the Lord to show you things in your life that are worthless and deceitful and are causing you to sin and grieve the Holy Spirit? If you haven't, if you ask your spouse, they will tell you what those things are. They will. And you probably know what they are in your spouses. Oh, you know, yeah, I know some things that, that bug me. They certainly got to bug the Lord. Um, and... You know, have you asked him, Lord, just show me, show me. How am I being deceived here? I don't want to, because if I do, I'm afraid what you're going to say. And what you're going to say is you're going to want me to give up something that's really important to me, like my independence or my ability to, to just come home and your kids leave me alone, wife leave me alone. I've worked really hard all day. I deserve this two hours or hour, whatever, just sitting and vegging. Everybody quiet. This is my time. Oh, what? That makes you a great dad and a great husband. I mean, what's a height of selfishness? No, it's my time title. I'm, I'm willing to do this. I mean, what, what's the Lord going to say? And what if he shows you things in your life that have to go? What are you going to do? Are you going to get rid of them? 
Or we're just going to kind of limp along. Revival is on the other side. A A vibrant, passionate relationship is on the other side if you just give up you. I'm not going to ask you to do this right now, but I'm going to ask you to do it today. Go home and ask him, Lord, what are some things in my life that are that I'm not trusting you with, that are keeping me from a deeper relationship with you? And he will tell you. And he will tell you them, and they will be painful because you don't want to do anything about them. Because if I do, then this is going to happen, and I don't want that to happen, and we take God completely out of the equation. How do you know that's going to happen? Well, I just know. No, you don't. You're not sovereign. Only God knows. Verse 40. I'm going to do two more of these. A couple verses later. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. This is just in Psalm 119. Behold, I, put your name there, I long for or long after. That's a powerful word, longing. It has, it means an inherent desire or a deep passion. You know, I, I long for a family. I long for someone to share my life with. I, I long for my husband. I mean, I don't, I don't really know how wives, some of, I don't know how wives, um, really handled like World War II. You know, today you go overseas, you know, in the, the Gulf War or something of that nature, and you're over there for maybe a year, and you come back at certain rotations and all that kind of stuff. But, but my understanding in World War II is that, man, if you went over in 1941, you didn't come home till the war was done. I mean, years, years. I, you know, my husband's gone, and here I am with five kids at home, and, and I've got to take care of all this, and I long for him. I long for his letters. I long to know that he's okay. I, I long to hear from him. A husband sitting in a foxhole, hasn't seen his wife or his kids in three or four years, longs for that letter from home more than anything. I had this inherent desire. This I want it more than anything. And look what it says here. I long for your precepts, your instructions, your laws, your statutes. Your yes and no, right and wrong? Why? Why would you long for that? Why wouldn't you long for the promises? Oh God, you're so good and you're so wonderful and you're so loving and you have a cattle on a thousand hills and I am in you and I'm the head and not the tail and you've heard all that kind of stuff. That's what we long for, to make us number one, to make me happy. But not here. I long for your laws, your statutes, your precepts. Why? Because I want to know what pleases you. I want to know how to obey you. I want to know how to conform my life to you. I want to know in the minutest little detail what you require. Why? Because my life is tied up in you. I've experienced revival. And if I can't long for these things, Lord, revive me. Give me this life that's more alive that I want more than anything else. Revive me in your, not my, righteousness. In my blame, your blameless conduct, your integrity, your right actions and right attitudes that are expected from both God to be righteous and his children to be righteous. I don't know about you, but as I was going through this, and I'm looking at this, revive me for this reason, and revive me for this reason, I find my soul in the dust and revive me for that reason, I end up realizing that key to all of this is revival. And it's ours. For the asking. Is it easy? No. It requires some things on our part, like a longing for him. How does that happen? Quote Charles Spurgeon said, this is so typical of the church, for every ten people who will die for the Bible, he only finds one who will read it. How many people here will die for the word of God? I will. How many people read it and follow it? I don't have time. I'm too busy with my business and my family and my kids' soccer games and, and my garden that I planted and piling up stuff for retirement, doing the things that I want to do, making my life here more pleasant. And if it was true back then, 150 years ago, it's probably more true now. Steve, do you love God's Word? I do. I do. I, I study it all the time. I read it all the time. I, I 
It's my greatest passion is God's Word. Well, what part of God's Word do you love the most? Oh, I love prophecy. I do. I love the Psalms. I love the wisdom in, in the book of Proverbs. I, you know, I love, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I love the teaching of Christ and, and stuff of that nature. I do. I do. Well, how do I know that you love them? Well, I read them the most. Those are, those are the ones that are underlined. Those are the ones that, that I teach on. Those are the ones that just overwhelm me. Well, what, what part of God's Word is most difficult for you? His commands. His commands. Because that's like a dividing line. That's like an obedience line. That's like I say I love God with his prophecies and all the wonderful things that he says, and yet I, I, I can see a, a command here, and then I have a choice whether to obey it or not. For example, you can love all his prophecy and book of Revelation and all his wonderful promises that he's given for you, the doctrine of election and the fact that you know Jesus intercedes for us and the sinless atonement of Christ and all that kind of stuff. And then you look at the passages where it talks about how a husband is to love his wife, how a husband is to lead his wife, how a husband or a father is to respond to his children. Ah, see, that's, that's something I can be tested on. That's something I can be graded on. That's something other people can look at. Am I a provider? Am I a protector? Am I... Am I someone who's loving my wife more than I love myself? Or do I love me more than I love her and want her just to serve me? And I would never say that, but do my actions speak otherwise? Those are commands. Those are things that are most difficult. And here it says that I long for your commands, for your precepts, for your instructions. Not doing it my own way, doing it your way. So what do you long for? What's the driving passion in your life? Money? Fame? Being liked by other people? Happiness? Good health? All of that will change. All of that will change. Before I came here, it's really amazing. Before I came here, I was going through some Facebook posts and I saw you know these little um, clickbait pages where it talks about pictures Last pictures taking of famous people. And I started clicking through them. Steve Jobs. You ever seen the last picture taken of him? Oh, my goodness. Some frail man weighed about 90 pounds, you know, a couple days before he died. Um, Freddie Mercury. And on and on and on and on. Burt Reynolds. The picture walking, Burt Reynolds coming out with the camera. He's just like, I remember Burt Reynolds as this, you know, big hunk kind of guy. And Now, everybody gets old. Everybody gets frail, everybody dies. Everybody leaves everything behind. Everything. You leave your, your Apple empire, you leave all the wealth in the world that you have, you leave it all behind. So what do you long for? The stuff that is transitory or the stuff that matters? You will even leave your wife and your children behind if you die first. Things we honor the most will be gone. The only thing that lasts is our relationship with him. So Steve, what is the source of your greatest joy and greatest desire? It's, it, is it my word? Is it my teaching? Or is, is it specifically my precepts? Because the precepts are put in my word to keep me from straying. They're, they're like, this sounds really terrible, they're like bumper pads on a, um, on a uh, bowling alley to keep me from getting in the gutter. You ever taken the kids to go bowling? Well, that's that's cheating. Yeah, but it sure makes it a whole lot easier. You know, I just got to stay. So I'll hit some pin down there. Maybe not all of them, but some, because I'm not going to do a gutter ball. That's what his precepts do for us. So if you don't have that love and that longing for his precepts, what do you do? You pray for revival. Because revival is the only thing that can bring that to you. This Because we know it's true, but we're not embracing it. And the only way to embrace it is have our hearts centered on Him, to be overwhelmed with Him. So I want you to, I want you to go ahead and turn to Luke 14 for me. Luke 14. Look what it says here. Now the multitudes went with Him. 
Because he was a hot commodity. We're going to follow Jesus. Jesus is great. We've taken days off from work and he's fed us miraculously. He's healed a bunch of people. My kids got acne. I'm going to see his crooked teeth. I'm going to see if I get Jesus to heal him. Everything is great. And so Jesus is seeing his multitude follow him on false pretenses. And so he begins to tell them the truth. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own parents, I mean, come on. Come on. Oh yeah, I, you know I can hate my dad because my dad was kind of a pain, and you know he didn't really love me anyway, and he left me when I was a little kid. And I remember anything. Okay, I, I can hate my dad and my mom. I got that. Well, how about your wife and children? Well, that's a different story. Or your brothers or sisters? How about your own life? If you don't hate those things in comparison to your devotion to him, you cannot categorically be my disciple. It doesn't say that it's going to be difficult to be my disciple. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. You cannot, period, finito, we're done, be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You can't do it. Can't be my disciple. And then he goes on in verses 28 through 32, where he starts talking about counting the cost. And the amazing thing about those is you find the word first in here. Verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish it. What a fool. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. And then the chilling conclusion. Verse 33. So likewise, in the same way, whoever of you does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's really easy to know what it meant in biblical times. It's really easy to know what it meant in foreign countries right now where people don't have as much stuff. It's really hard for us to get our mind around it because we got so much stuff. What does it mean to forsake all? Primarily to forsake you. All that you have is tied up in you. And if I'm not willing to do that, What does it say about my desire to be his disciple? Now, we can soft-soap this any way we want to, but when Jesus preached them to the people who were listening to him, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Lord, I don't know how to forsake all. Revival can change that. Revival can, can allow you to still maintain all that you have, but you have no ownership of it anymore. It now belongs to him. It's now something been entrusted to you as a benefit to others. And it changes everything. I, I just, I, I, I lost $40. No, actually you didn't. Uh, won your money in the first place. Kind of sad it's gone, but it, it happens. It's God's job to take care of that. Remember, anyone can long after God's promises. But it takes a mature spiritual person to long after his precepts and his instructions. And revival can allow you to do that. It can change everything. I don't really know if it's worth it. Well, it is. It's profoundly worth it. Let me do one more. And then we'll save the rest for later. Psalm 119, verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness. Why? Why should you get revival? So you can be happy so you can be blessed, so you can have your best life now, so that you know God will give you all the dreams of your life, everything that you want to come true, he'll do for you, just for you, always for you. No, revive me so that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth, that I can understand your precepts and I can keep the words of your mouth. What does that mean? Revive or quicken or to make my life even more alive. Revive me personally, Lord, according to your mercy. Your loving kindness, your act of faithfulness. I love the same phrase almost in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which talks about one of the things that's necessary revival to, to lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice. 
But it says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the loving kindness of God, by the gentleness of God, to surrender yourself to him. Why? Why do we want to be revived? So that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The word keep here means to guard and protect like a warden over a prison. I got my eye on everything going on here. I'm carefully inspecting each one. I want to make sure that nothing gets out of line, that everything is in order, that I'm fulfilling my fiduciary duty for these prisoners, that I may keep the testimonies, the precepts, the warnings it means from the mouth of God, from the words of God. That's what revival does. And when revival takes place, it makes us excited about that, to to be able to be empowered, to be able to, to be all about him. Right now, when people say they've experienced revival, it means that you experience some sort of feel-good sensation. Man, I went and the music was incredible, and it just felt like the bass was like in my chest, and my, the hairs on my arms started rising up when the, the, the praise band got out there and sang these songs, and it was just a crescendo kind of moment. And then the speaker came out. Not a pastor anymore. There were always speakers. The speaker came out, and he, he preached his message, and every time he said a word, the person on the organ went, dun, 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 dun. it was incredible. It was better than anything I've ever emotionally experienced. Well, that's what we try to duplicate. But that's not necessarily Holy Spirit moving because then we leave and we can't wait to go back and get another fix that night. Revival changes everything. Everything. The abundant life in Christ is its not just accumulating us having more stuff. The abundant life in Christ comes from us knowing and following Him. And revival comes through God. It's his desire for each one of us. We call it revival because our spiritual state is is rather low. Revival for us is really the normal Christian life to him. Look what it says in Ephesians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you feel that blessing? Are you experienced that blessing on a day-in and day-out basis? Just as he chose us, oh my gosh, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us and redeemed us so that we could live sanctified lives, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Why? Why would he do that? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. God, why would you do all that for me? Because it made me happy. Because I desired to. Because I wanted to. Because it was the good pleasure of my will to save you. That should just overwhelm us with joy and excitement. Far greater than the problems that make our soul suck dust. It continues. In him, in him, he just lays out the blessings. We have redemption through his blood, his sacrifice. The forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Why would you do all that, God, according to his good pleasure? Because I wanted to. I wanted to bless you this way that he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times that he might gather together in one, you and I, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on an earth, gathered them together in him. Wow. If you could get a handle of that, on that. One more. Philippians 2. God brought us into this relationship with him because he wanted to. And how are we supposed to live? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, because he wants to. We're revived because of his loving kindness. We are not revived because we deserve it. Oh, we prayed harder than other people have because it's part of our heritage, because God owes it to us. 
We're revived because he loves us. We are saved because he chose us. And all we can do to help prepare for that is make sure that we have nothing that will grieve his spirit. It's ours for the asking, but it comes at his timing. The scripture says you have not because you ask not. And so why don't we start asking? Why don't we start asking? You go home and ask, Lord, would you revive me again? Would you... Would you let me be a 10 spiritually and then, then I don't want to be satisfied anymore being a 10. I want to be a 12 or a 14 or a 20 or a 50 or a 100 or a 1,000. I don't want to. I, I, would you take my eyes off these things of the world? Would you do something that just changes me? And then we have the big roadblock. Yes, I will. But you have an enemy. And so therefore, when you think things are going to be smooth sailing, you will find that you are afflicted. That tough things happen to you. I am afflicted very much, verse 107 says. Revive me, O Lord, according to your words. Afflicted, I'm impressed. I'm bowed down. I'm humbled. I'm broken exceedingly. I don't even know how I can get through the next day. I mean, I just, just let me die and take me, kill me now. I'm just, I, I, I'm overwhelmed. I'm afflicted by your chastisement. I'm afflicted by the decisions I've made in my own life. I'm afflicted by the darkness of the world as I'm trying to be light. I'm afflicted by the persecution of Satan and of the world. I am almost broken to the point my soul clings to the dust. The Lord, it doesn't matter. I want you to quicken me. Revive me according to your word, according to what you promised, according to what you'll do. doesn't matter what my situation is when I cry out to you. What matters is the fact that you always respond. You always hear. You're always there. During afflictions, some people seek death. Matter of fact, if you'll do a study of people who commit suicide, they really don't want to die. Most people who commit suicide don't want to die. What they want to do is get out from under the pain. I can't take the pain anymore. I can't take the depression anymore. I can't take the, the heartache anymore. There has to be something better than this. But as a believer in Christ, when we're afflicted, we long for more life, the persevering life. Yeah, the same thing that's happening to me is the same thing that's happening to Tim. But the fact is that we're believers. And so let's pile it on, Lord. We don't care. We just want more life in you. And if I have to suffer affliction to have more life in you, it's okay. Well, what if that affliction comes from a chastisement of God? Well, even consecrated people who serve him righteously are still chastised by God. The best son in the world is still corrected by the Father. Is he not? We all make mistakes. Billy Graham makes mistakes or made mistakes. They all do. The Apostle Paul had a temper, made mistakes. So we're all chastised by God because he says he chastises though that he loves. So if part of our affliction comes from a chastisement, rejoice. Rejoice. It means that you love me and you haven't forsaken me. But the remedy for that of trials and tribulation comes from a spirit-led revival because revival in your heart changes everything. It, not, it may not remove the chastisement, but it certainly gives you a different perspective on that, seeing how good he is even during tough times. And there's a couple more, 40, 149, 154. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness and revive me according to your justice. Plead my cause and redeemed me. I'm being unjustly accused here. Revive me according to your word. Great and tender are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness and on and on and on. For revival to take place, as I shared with you before, everything has to change. Everything. The way you view God, the way you view yourself, the way you view life, the way you spend your time praying, what you, what you fill your life with. It's not like I have a job to do. It's like I get an opportunity to go to my job as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like, man, I had these terrible friends that always put me down. You know what? I expect them to put me down and say bad things about me because I'm an ambassador to the Lord Jesus Christ and I get an opportunity to hang with them and shine the light of Christ in their life. I just don't feel like doing that. I know. Because revival hasn't taken place. But when it does, 
Everything changes. We're going to talk more about that next week. Because next week what we're going to talk about is how to pray for revival. How you can individually pray for revival. Now, we're not talking about revival out there, although it would be a great thing to pray for. Talk about revival right here. Lord, what do I need to do? How can I pray? And then what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time doing just that. Um, after we learn how to pray for revival, probably the following Tuesday, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a 15-minute Bible study and a 45-minute prayer time versus what we've been having is an hour and 15-minute Bible study and a five-minute prayer time and start doing the things that can actually change our heart to bring revival. Because let me tell you, um, my neighbors need me to have revival. My brother needs me to experience revival. Your family needs you to experience revival, to have that boldness and that confidence to go in there and share the Lord Jesus Christ with them and do it as a flowing of his spirit rather than something that we dread. Amen? Revival changes everything. Let me pray.